You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Greetings, Daniel. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I was having a conversation with my pre-service teachers today. We were, we were talking about a lot of stuff, and one of the things that um, we brought up was the things that you can't control in schools. So we're we talking like curriculum. We're talking like whether or not my student is eaten in the morning, mm-hmm. the size of my classroom, legislative stuff, parental involvement or yeah just the the day-to-day stuff you know students come to class with you know they bring a lot of gifts to our class but then sometimes they also just come to class with with some issues that maybe you not wouldn't anticipate right and so there's just things sometimes out of your control no matter what you do as a teacher that there's a hornet's nest right outside my classroom (laughs) they're fixing it now that i do have control over because i put a, a work order in and it's going to be gone, apparently. We had a bee problem last year, like an indoor classroom in a building, and we started having bees in the classroom. So, But that's not really what I think we should focus our podcast <laughs> on today. I think there's some other issues. And I think one really important issue particularly is the resources that schools have. And I think that starts with funding. What money does a district have to do the things it has to do? That's a really good point. We actually have a guest who's been thinking on this topic a bit lately. Really? And yeah. Yeah, I know we have a guest today. Surprise, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would like to welcome into the podcast, welcome Nate Bowling. Hi, Nate. Thank you. Hey, fellas. How's it going? We're really excited to have you on. So how do we get this guest? Nate, you're the first guest that my mom said should be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. I have to hear the story, please. So uh, she just sent me a video of you and this guy named Bill Gates talking. And she said, you should have this guy on the podcast. He seems cool. My mom has earned some good credit with me by, you know, being a really nice mom. So do it. I said, okay, mom. She listens to all the podcasts. I actually didn't know that either. I, um, I asked her if she'd listen to any more after the, like the ones she's like, oh yeah, I've listened to them all. <laughs> so, so does that awesome. mean that moms this- know best? Yeah, they do. Does that mean this podcast is now Bill Gates adjacent through, through you? Yeah. Through Nate. Ups. Six degrees of Nate Bowling. Let's play the game. Oh, my God. So, Nate, tell us about uh, your background in education. And at some point, you could work in how that led to you and Bill Gates having a conversation. Please. Sure. Uh, So, I'm in my 11th year of teaching, and I work at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington. And so, Lincoln's like your classic uh, low-income, high-need urban school. We're out here in Washington State, which is like 10% people of color. But because of neighborhood segregation, my high school is 75% students of color. Our graduation rate in the past has been quite poor, but over the last few years, uh, through some, some, some changes in policies and practices from our principal, uh, it's soared over the last few years. And so now we're graduating like 80% of our students on time, and then 40% of our students are taking AP classes. And so essentially, we're challenging kids to do more and to work harder. Uh, I've been at Lincoln for eight years. Before that, I worked at Meeker Middle School, which is a 
an affluent middle school on the far side of town. And so essentially like I've worked in the highest poverty high school in my school district and then the lowest poverty high school, uh, middle school in the district. So I've seen kind of both sides of uh, the education funding landscape and what kind of happens. Along with being a teacher for the last 11 years, I've been pretty active in the policy world. In 2011, I helped start a group called Teachers United. And so TU for short, our, our idea is, is that basically in education, there's a bifurcated debate. There's kind of this like false dichotomy of the, the red rump uh, we'll call it like industrial unionism faction who says heck no to everything. Uh, they're kind of, you know, anti-reform and anti and, and like pro status quo. And you know, for a lot of complicated reasons and, and not for right now. But then on the flip side, there's reformers who have kind of this like pie in the sky worldview about what's possible. Uh, and they often propose solutions that aren't grounded in the practice of teachers. And so we started Teachers United to create kind of a third way in the policy conversation. Along the way, I've been recognized for my work. So I've been uh, named the Washington State Teacher of the Year in 2016. Uh, Congratulations. Some, thank you. Uh, I've had some of my writing published in the Washington Post and the Huffington Post and New York Observer. Uh, and then over the last year, uh, just through various flukes, I've got to sit down with uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, uh, Bill Gates, and Chinese President Xi Jinping. Holy cow. I've heard of all of those people. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's been, it's been a phenomenal ride. And like what, what's happened is that I'm able to advocate for policies and perspectives that otherwise are left out of the, uh, the education discourse. Like we all understand that if you're listening to this podcast, you understand that ed policy often happens to teachers and not with teachers. And so I've been given a position, uh, in uh, basically a platform in order to advocate for policies. And so I've been advocating for policies that, uh, that put my kids first and also that, uh, that kind of shine a bright light on some of the shortcomings uh, in education here in Washington state and nationwide. What type of policies were you, um, are you advocating for or did you advocate well, so, for? So it's funny because like when I first started, like uh, my whole thing was going to be about teacher effectiveness. Cause like I'm one of those fundamental beliefs believers in teacher power. Uh, I understand. And like I say to my students, I say to my staff, uh, the number one in school factor impacting student achievement is the effectiveness of the educator in the room. And I believe that. But like teacher effectiveness is starting seven steps down the road. We have to talk about teacher professional development. We have to talk about teacher certification and recruitment. And yeah. so for me, I'm working backwards from effectiveness and I'm saying, how do we get effective, passionate young people to go into teaching? How do we develop them? How do we make sure they're happy in the career field so they can stay and make a difference? Like if you look at the data and it's, it's, it's stupid, the data is absolutely stupid sometimes. 50% uh, of new teachers quit. So like I'm in year 11 and so I'm really good at what I do in year 11, but I'm good in year 11 because I made it to year seven. There's thousands upon thousands of teachers out there who could have made it to year seven or 11, but didn't make it in their first three years because they didn't feel supported. Uh, they didn't have good administration. And like not everybody who leaves teaching is a loss. Like there's some people who don't belong in the profession, but there's a lot of amazing phenomenal educators who left the classroom because they didn't feel supported. And so it's how can we create systems and supports to keep those effective teachers in our schools? And then more specifically, how can we incentivize those effective teachers to go to our highest need schools where they need it the most? Wow, Nate, you're really um, getting at some, I think the most important issues in education and I've had this conversation a lot lately because a lot of the national talk I feel like over the last I don't know 10 to 15 years has been about bad teachers and I've tried to convey to people that I think we're focusing on the wrong end of the issue not that not that if somebody's a really bad teacher it is going to do harm to students and, and not care about the profession that they should continue doing it they shouldn't but that the bigger challenge is to bring in and retain more good teachers 
Because then that gives you choice over who's in your school. And right now, I would argue in too many places, we don't have uh, a large enough pool to really be worrying about the bad teacher side. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, tell us real quick before we jump into discussing some of the more specific issues you want to talk about. What what do you teach? Sure. So it's funny because like right now it's it's you know West Coast time. I'm, I'm sitting in my classroom. Uh, I teach AP government and politics, which is your standard AP course. But in my building, we do academic acceleration. And so like if you can basically hold a pencil and have a pulse, you're in the AP class. Um, and it's an amazing class because we're talking about government and politics in an election year. And right. so, uh, for example, last night I had about 60 students sit in the room uh, until 8 o'clock at night watching the debate. The other class that I teach is a ninth grade AP human geography class. And human geography is a cultural anthropology class. And so it's looking not at like where places are, but why things are. So like why do are we speaking in English instead of Chinese or German? Uh, why do we wear jeans as a casual outfit instead of some sort of wrap? Uh, why are the majority of Americans who are religious Christian and a minority other things? Uh, why are nations that are wealthy or have lower birth rates? Uh, and so what, what is a nation state? And so I'm teaching that class to ninth graders. And it's, it's a ball to teach. It's a, it's a super, super fun class. And at the beginning of the year, the kids are like, what? And at the end of the year, they're so conversant in conflicts around the world. I, I have ninth graders by the end of the year who can talk about the causes of the Palestinian Israeli crisis and compare it to the conflict in Northern Ireland, Ireland and compare it to the conflict uh, between pa- uh, Pakistan and India, who at the beginning of the year couldn't find any of those places on a map. And so like mm-hmm. that growth curve that I see is just, it's, it's the best. So I know that you talked about uh, moving your students up or more, what, 40% of your students to AP classes. Do you yeah. think that doing that um, raises the expectation level and raises their game? And so that's one of the ways you've been able to have this uh, really great um, turnaround. I think one of the most important things we can do to engage students is challenge them. Like bored students don't engage. Uh, I, I think about the tasks that I'm asking my students to do in ninth grade and then compare them to what I was asked to do in ninth grade. And like this isn't shade towards my teachers, but like my, f- like my formative memory of ninth grade was watching a slideshow on like the Don Draper Madman carousel uh, of my <laughs> teacher's trip to see the – right? My teacher's trip to see the terracotta. Warriors and uh, and him talking about the handover of Hong Kong. That's did we all have the I remember. Same teacher? I, we, we, maybe we did. Like that's all <laughs> I remember from ninth grade social studies. And uh, that's not what my students are getting. Like my students are looking at GIS data for their neighborhood. Uh, my students do an experiment or a, a field study where they decide where the most ideal place to locate a food truck is in the neighborhood to, in the city to meet demographics and traffic patterns. When you're engaging students in authentic work, they rise to the occasion. I agree. Um, every time I talk to a teacher and we get talking curriculum and stuff, I just like, I'm like, okay, I've got to get back in the classroom, um, which I love. <laughs> I my just want to talk I love, to you more about this. I love my job working with pre-service teachers at the university level, but I just miss high school. And I taught government, which was so fun to teach during um, the elections. I always told people, Nate, that that actually talking politics with my students was so much more refreshing than talking with adults, um, that I really got a lot personally out of it. It kept my hope alive during the election because uh, students tend to be, you can create a, a positive environment in your class for having dialogue, whereas a lot of adults just kind of yell at each other. Well, right. And they also don't have any like predisposed, they're not predisposed to these notions. Like I, I often think about when we're talking about, you know, matters around the world, there's certain narratives that adults are set into based on their ideologies that they're wedded to those, to those narratives no matter what. 
And so they'll they'll make statements that that contradict the values they espouse, but like kids don't have that ideological rigidity. They're not rigid. And so like they're gonna go with justice. And so like talking to kids is super refreshing because they're not like ideologically or, or oriented, they're justice oriented. And so like their question is, what is the fair, right, and just thing to happen? And like I just feel like if you approach life uh, looking at what's fair, right, and just, like you're gonna have better outcomes. And so I'm totally with you. Like I'm a pessimist about adults. Uh, one of the things I found in doing ed policy work is that adults are super stubborn and have entrenched interests that they want to preserve. And like kids are super pure and super amazing. And so to have the opportunity to like leave my cognitive f- fingerprints on kids, like I, it, there's no other job that I would like to do on the planet, but it hasn't always been that way. Like if you would have asked me when I was in high school, would, would I going to become a teacher? Like, hell no. Like that didn't appeal to me at all, but it's where I've ended up and I've thrived at it. So you're here to talk to us about um, equity and resources in schools. What do you mean by that? So when we talk about schools and you had a, a comment, there was a comment a moment ago about like the national education reform and the national education conversation. So much of the national education conversation is focused on outputs, like what's happening, but we don't have a conversation about inputs and resources. And so simply put, like if you want, kids in poverty and kids of color to achieve, then you have to fill the opportunity gaps that they have. And you have to provide them with the things that families of means and middle-class families have. Uh, for example, I have an advisory uh, of, of seniors. Last year, every single one of my seniors was accepted to either a two-year, a four-year, a vocational school, uh, or an apprenticeship. But they were put into that because they had me Uncle Bowling, like all over them, following through and making sure no deadlines got met, interpreting documents for them. And so essentially we, we have a system where students are coming into one set of schools, uh, lacking resources, lacking connections, lacking funding, lacking opportunities. And students are coming to another set of schools with resources, with funding, with opportunities, with connections. And then we point at the end and go, how come the, out- the outputs are disparate? Like, well, obviously the outputs are disparate because we're not looking at the inputs. And so for me, equity is looking at the inputs that we have in school. And the inputs could be teacher quality. The inputs could be funding. The inputs could be materials and building. The inputs could be capital budgets. And like, if we look across the board, kids of color and kids of poverty lose in every single one of those indices. You moved from a district that you said was um, it was very affluent to a district that was not. It doesn't seem. Um, why did you make that leap? Was that because the, it was what you wanted to do? You wanted to um, advocate for students who are who don't have privilege that that the affluent students do. Well, my plan A was to work at the middle school that I went to, and uh, I student taught there, but my district's HR department didn't have the same plan for me, so I ended up at the more affluent middle school, and then I got to the affluent middle school, and honestly, I found a home, and I fell in love, and I, I love where I was doing. I love the parents and the students there. Uh, one thing I'll say is, is that principal leadership matters, and so any teacher, if you get them you know, behind closed doors and ask them... Uh, the quality of your principles is one of the most important factors in where you work and the work you can do. And essentially, as far as I'm concerned, the best principal in the state of Washington uh, came to me and said, I want you to work at Lincoln High School. And uh, the first time he said it, uh, I didn't go because I was out of town over the summer and so like the job interview, things didn't line up. But uh, the second time around, he made a run at me and I came over. And I've been at Lincoln High School ever since. Interesting. So you really were. That sounds like, I mean, it's really recruiting great, really great people. And obviously that, that really worked out there. I, I fundamentally believe that 
if you if you show me a school that is making a difference in the lives of kids in poverty and kids of color, I'm going to show you a school that has a a visionary leader, b yeah. that visionary leader is going to have empowered teachers, and then c those teachers are going to be working cooperatively, and other effective educators who are watching are going to want to be in that building. And that's what we have. Like my principal goes out and recruits the talent from other schools, and uh, we do the same thing as teachers. We go out and try to recruit the A team from other schools. Uh, this year we picked up one science teacher and one geography teacher from a district to the south of us who's having some uh, management issues. And we picked up uh, the vice president of the Washington State Council of Social Studies uh, from a district to the north of us who's, who was frustrated in her job. And so like my principal recruits talent and then empowers us to make a difference and then kind of leaves us alone and gives us support. And like that's who wouldn't want to work in that situation. And so not only do I love working here, but my students love learning here. That's awesome. I mean, I, I completely agree with um, the importance of leadership in a school. I mean, uh, leaders, uh, I wouldn't call them leaders, uh, administrators who micromanage or don't trust their faculty, don't hire the right people and trust them to do work and empower them. Um, you know, they just don't get the most out of the faculty that they could. So what what are some things you think we need to be thinking about or consider when we think about making schools more equitable or making sure that schools have the resources they need to succeed. One of the biggest barriers to equity in schools is the model of district that we have. Uh, If you look around the country, we have, you know, 50 states divided into God knows how many counties divided into God knows how many districts. And if you look at every one of those district lines, uh, there's a story to be told about a group of parents or a group of citizens who didn't want their kids to go to school with the kids on the other side of the line. Uh, I think about uh, Oakland. So Oakland Unified School District is the district that serves Oakland, California. But then within Oakland, California, there's a city called Piedmont. And so Piedmont is a very affluent area that is predominantly white and wealthy. And they have their own school district that's an island within Oakland. Well, gee, why was that line created? And so if we look at these maps, we can see that Around the country, we have these artificially constructed borders of school districts whose sole purpose is to keep resources with one group of kids or away from another. Uh, There's an amazing This American Life episode uh, where they went and investigated Ferguson. And like the greater St. Louis area where uh, Ferguson, Missouri is, I want to say is is divided into at least five different school districts. And those school districts demographics range from, you know, you know, uh, nearly 100 percent black to nearly 100 percent white. So again, why were these lines created? These lines were created because certain families wanted to keep the resources with their communities. Well, if the resources are all being consolidated in one community and that community already already has economic advantages, then it's just going to exacerbate the existing inequality. And so like at the root of the system we have is the school district line. Um, in Massachusetts, they've done some really good work with school equity. And so instead of trying to get equal funding for schools, it's equitable funding for schools with the understanding that higher poverty schools have more needs for support programs and need higher budgets. But like we're, we're, we're far, far behind that here in Washington state. I mean, what you're describing is happening everywhere across the United States. And in politics, we call it gerrymandering. Um, the drawing of lines to benefit certain groups. But in education, it seems like we almost don't have a name for this. It's almost like something that needs to be named and addressed. Educational gerrymandering? Yeah, I mean, that we could just use the gerrymandering term, right? I uh, pronounce it gerrymandering because I know that it's named after Elbridge Gerry, whose name is Gary, not Jerry, like it's often pronounced. It's very social, <laughs> very social studies correction. I once wrote a history sketch about Elbridge Gerry and why people always you know, get his name wrong. It's amusing. 
Um, so back back to the topic. Thank you though for that, Michael. <laughs> um, first, I'll just say that American Life episode that you I use that with my students to discuss this issue as we discuss equity in schools. It's it's a fantastic look at a, a really large problem. And there's a really in, interesting article that I um, just recently saw that I'll make sure to add to our show notes um, from an organization that focuses on equity called the Hetchinger Report is I think how they're pronounced it. Yep. And they had an interesting article about. Um, the consolidation of two districts that were basically segregated along racial and socioeconomic lines in Mississippi. And it was a really uh, a problem that um, a lot of people just have ignored. I mean, we we talk about Brown versus Board oftentimes as if it solved segregation in the United States. It didn't. It addressed de jure segregation to some degree. I would say that it didn't even fully address it. And then it hardly addressed what's called de facto segregation, which I'm not even sure if that's the proper term because it's not those decisions are not just people living in residential areas. They're often very intentional decisions about the way districts are drawn and made. And so Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a lot out there about this topic, but it just doesn't seem to be getting attention. I think what I hear from people, I hear this a lot of times from white people because a lot of my white friends are starting to you know, move out of urban areas to more suburban areas. And I asked them if they've considered the school districts in their cities, and they often don't know much about them. They just assume that that's what they're supposed to do because the rankings are high. I mean, what what solutions are out there or what things can educators um, and parents and community members do to start helping turn the tide to have more integrated schools along different lines? Well, one of the things we have to understand is is like the strength of the incentives for families, for white families to leave neighborhoods. Um, at some point in the future, we're going to look back uh, on the practices of real estate and how real estate agents and, and the real, realtor in, industry has really fueled this. Uh, if you go back to, you know, think about like blockbusting and white flight in the past, uh, real estate agents would approach families basically as a block was diversifying and then they would take the family, the white family's home, make the commission selling it, and then make another commission selling it to a black family, and they would blockbust. Um, the incentives today are working class white 20-somethings, they live in urban areas, they live in working class neighborhoods, and so it's time for them to get, to get it, to have a child. And then when it's time for them to have a child, they go online and they you know, Google the school rankings, and the school rankings are basically a sorting by socioeconomic status. And so they're incentivized to take their kids and move to a more homogeneous community uh, that is more economically advantaged. And what they leave behind is a community with a lower tax base and students who are struggling. And like, that's a, that's a tough nut to crack. What I would say is, is that in schooling, we haven't figured out yet what urban planners figured out you know, in the 70s. If you look at Baltimore, look at Chicago, look at Detroit, look at New York, uh, we used to build these giant you know, urban high-rise projects. And we would just take all the poor people and put them in these giant projects. But urban planners realized that you can't concentrate poverty like that. Like when you concentrate poverty, you exacerbate the, uh, the struggles and exacerbate the, the, the dysfunction that's happening in that community. But we still have schools like that. Like no city commissioner would commission the building of a community or a neighborhood or a high rise that was 98% poverty, 85% poverty. But we do it all the time with schools. And just we're, we're behind on that lesson. Like we, we need to diversify communities. And the thing is, if you, if you diversify the communities, if you have communities that are more heterogeneous, you're bringing needed resources in, you know, your effective educators are going to stay. Uh, every incentive that exists as an educator right now is if you're working in a high poverty school is to get the hell out. 
Because in many states, you're evaluated based on your test scores of your students. In many states, you're getting paid a lower salary. In many states, you have higher class sizes. In many states, you have inferior facilities. And so if you're an educator who's effective, and we said earlier on that the effectiveness of the teacher is the most important in-school factor impacting student achievement, if you're an effective educator, every incentive for you is to leave a high-poverty school and move to the burbs where the work is easier. Mm-hmm. And so that's a tough nut to crack and kind of an onion to unpeel because we have real estate issues. We have funding issues. We have issues of systemic racism. And so, like, I don't know where it starts, but, like, I want to get started on fixing it. So you said in Massachusetts that they're, they're doing equitable funding. Is that the, the state um, providing additional funds for areas that are in need? Is that the type of equitable funding that you're talking about? Yeah, and, 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 and put simply, yes, yes. And it, it's not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than most states are doing. It's definitely a problem, an issue that we have to address. I think segregation in our schools on socioeconomic and racial lines is the the number one challenge facing schools because a lot of the problems stem from those issues that of having concentrated poverty. We need to gerrymander for good. <laughs> There's a writer named Nicole Hannah Jones, and she mm-hmm. writes for the New York Times Magazine, and like. Ta-Nehisi is like off kicking in, in Paris right now. And so for me, Nicole Hannah-Jones is the best race writer uh, in the U.S. She's amazing. She put a question online and she said basically, and I'm going to paraphrase and butcher it. She said that housing segregation was the result of intentional federal, state, and local policies. So then desegregation has to be the result of intentional state, federal, and local policies. Like if we arrived at this destination of segregated housing via the mechanisms of government, then the way to bring us out of this is the mechanisms of government. But here's the catch. The people who are advantaged have no desire and no inclination, and rightfully so, for being honest, to give any of their advantage back. And there's no like political constituency and there's no political hate to be made saying to middle-class white families, you have to go live in neighborhoods with people you don't want to live with. And so like, I don't see a policy remedy. It has to be like a campaign of hearts to minds. Uh, I don't know. I, I've been told in teaching we shouldn't use war metaphors, but I think about counterinsurgency. Like you have to win hearts first and then minds. We have to win the hearts of people that they should put their kids in communities that are diverse and they should invest in communities and diverse and they should put their kids in these schools uh, because like, I don't know, we're all in it together. And that's, that, that's the thing that, that I'm, I, I really, I, I really keep coming back to is that the, the destiny of our society is not going to be how smart is my kid or how prepared is my kid? The destiny of, my, of our society is gonna be driven by how prepared are our children like on the aggregate. And our children aren't gonna get, get prepared on the aggregate if we have these, 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 these islands of poverty that are just basically festering and not being integrated into the larger economy and the larger community. I like you, Nate Bowling. Nate. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Nate, you said that there was an organization that was doing good work around this. What was that organization called? Uh, Ed Build. So Ed Build uh, is based out in New Jersey, and they have been dropping a series of uh, of reports about school segregation and school funding. Uh, they have a report called Dividing Lines, and another report uh, that looks at ooh, it looks at island school districts. And so I mentioned Piedmont District in Oakland, but that's one of hundreds around the state. Like almost every state basically has one district who 100% of their boundaries are contiguous within another district. And those island districts are used to sort kids out. Either you put your, all your poor kids in and then share the resources out, or you put all the rich kids in and keep the resources in. Well, there's you've given us a lot to think about for sure, um, Nate. And we are going to get a nice 
a list of resources for people from um, some of the, the articles and, and organizations that you've mentioned that we can take a look at to start delving into this very big but very important issue. So, um, yeah, just thank you so much for joining us today and, and, and um, chat, chatting with us about this topic. It's been my absolute pleasure. So, so where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, sure. They can follow me on Twitter at Nate underscore bowling, or they can uh, take a look at my blog at natebowling.com. Uh, and on my blog, I write about teaching, uh, sports, and society. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We can't wait to have you back on. And we, of course, hope to continue this discussion online and in other spaces. And on thank the, you. Uh, thank you. And on, on the Vision of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. <laughs> so you can tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're, looking, if you're doing something creative in education. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us uh, at Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Right, Michael? That's correct. We're there too now. And if you write us a five-star review, we'll totally read it on the air. Are we, are we prepared to do that right now? I am prepared. Okay. This is exciting. It's um, uh, a review from its marked social studies teacher. Mr. Cause 31 says, I'm so glad there's finally a social studies podcast. Dan and Michael do a wonderful job of introducing the listener to new concepts through interviews with leading education experts like Nate. I added that part in, but I think it's I think it fits. I also love the fact that podcasts are usually less than 30 minutes, ideally. It's the perfect podcast to listen to on the way to work. That's, All right. That was a great one. I'm glad that we're perfect on the way to work and yeah. on the way home and during lunch and at dinner parties. We'll also do dinner parties. Yeah, you can just flip it on instead of music. You can listen to a few uh, Visions of Education episodes, right? That's how I imagine everyone does it. Well, thank you very much and appreciate the review. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. And until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>